Gary, can you provide us an example of a successful US version of a British sitcom that you have enjoyed and also an example of one that did not do very well at all? An example of one that I enjoyed that was successful, I would say Freeze Company, mm-hmm. because it takes Man About the House and then it, it develops it in its own way. So some of the episodes are largely faithful to the British originals. Some of the episodes are entirely new. And of course, this is to be expected because even though you've got six series of Man About the House, then that still leaves uh, a lot of space for Freeze Company with eight seasons and their American length of show and the regular length of an American season. Then you've got lots of scope for it to be going off in all directions and so on. And yeah, it's a confident show that doesn't feel self-conscious in any way because sometimes you can sort of get that impression if, you know, maybe actors are trying to replicate somebody else's style from the original version or whatever it may be. Yeah, Freeze Company, very successful show in the States, ran for seven years and also had two spin-offs, just like Man About the House. As far as shows which didn't really work out, I mean, the been instances such as Red Dwarf or Men Behaving Badly or the Inbetweeners that have tried to go over to the States and for whatever reason maybe there's been too much sort of tinkering going on with them and they've taken too many bits and pieces out of the original so it's sort of lost its feel as far as what it's supposed to be about. It's it's not uncommon, sadly, but it's always interesting. It's always interesting to read about adaptations. I mean, you remember, we've just been talking about Only Fools and Horses. There was an Only Fools and Horses pilot with Christopher Lloyd, his granddad, that was made just a few years back? Yes. Now, there was a big hype about what this was going to be like, and it was only when you just said it then that I remembered this. And do you have any more information on this? Because I would love to actually see this. No, I'm afraid I don't. I've never come across a copy of it. I'd love to see it. But as far as I'm aware, it's certainly not something that's ever aired, and I, I don't think that it's as of yet escaped. But fingers crossed, it would, be, it would be nice to see it. Maybe if they bring out some definitive Only Fools and Horses box set in the future, then maybe it'll be included as an extra on there. Who knows? That's the one beauty of the 21st century, is that a lot of these pilots that didn't go much further than that are more or less available to find online on YouTube, on Vimeo, and so forth, and for the most part haven't been taken down. They're just there. And yeah, I mean, there are certain shows that by certainly by US standards aren't deemed successful but really getting past the pilot is still considered some kind of success i mean amanda's by the sea hey which is a US adaptation of faulty towers and even men behaving badly ran for two seasons on nbc and is available on dvd the one that i'm really interested in seeing now have you heard about the US version of the vicar of dibley no now, do you remember very successful and very good US sitcom, spin-off of Cheers, Frasier? Oh, yes. Well, Jane Leaves, British actress who played Daphne, and Perry Gilpin, who played Roz, Frasier's radio producer, they set up their own production company called Bristol Cities. And for their first project, 2007, they decided to adapt The Vicar of Dibley into an American sitcom for Fox, The Minister of Divine. And Kirstie Alley, was the Dawn French character. Hey. <laughs> a former wild child who returned to her hometown as its first female minister. Now, I don't know huge much more about this, but I really want to see <laughs> what yeah. this was like. And it is interesting as well to see how US sitcoms attempt to translate the UK 
into the US market. I mean, for example, sometimes you have examples where the original UK writers or creators are involved in some capacity and you have other times when they're not even informed and they find out on the wire themselves. For example, Spaced was meant to have been turned into a, an American sitcom and Edgar Wright and co, upon finding out that G, the director, was to direct it, renamed it Spaced, and... <laughs> I don't think it went much further than there. It petered out because... There's an American version of the IT credit, isn't it? Yes, there was. And Richard Aoardi reprised his role of Moss, very much in the same way that Nigel Planer reprised his role of Neil, the hippie, for the US version of The Young Ones, called Oh No, Not Them. And also Robert Lewin as Crichton in the Red Dwarf US version. So, yeah, it is not an uncommon thing. But a lot of these are available in various states of quality on YouTube and various other sites. Other sources are available? That's true. For the most part, most of them are freely available and have not been removed from public sites. I mean, it's not we're not really delving hugely into illicit territory. And to be honest, if a show has then gained some kind of success, they usually not too ashamed in featuring the unaired pilot on the inevitable DVD release. There are examples, of course, where they will not. And in fact, in commentaries, you hear, oh, we made this terrible version. When are we going to get to see the rear guard? Now, the rear guard, that's the Dad's Army one? That's right, yes. Yeah, I always get confused because I know that Beans of Boston was the Are You Being Served one produced by Gary Marshall. Indeed, yeah. Now, Hal Cooper is the man you'd have to ask, and I don't believe he's with us anymore. Clips of it were featured in the Comedy Connections documentary about Dad's Army. And strangely enough, the episode that they chose to adapt for the pilot was the famous one with Philip Maddock. You know, don't tell him, Pike. And yeah, for whatever reason, it didn't work out. And I think that, that, that that'll be the fun part of Sitcom Club USA, will be to analyse things like that, to compare and contrast, have a look at episodes side by side and see perhaps what's going on and what have you. We cannot mention Porridge without the mind-blowing fact that I'm sure we've mentioned in the Sitcom Club itself. There are more episodes of On the Rocks than there are of Porridge. And are any of these episodes available to watch on YouTube or elsewhere? Not that I'm aware. If ABC All Access ever turns up anywhere, then then damn right, I want to see it. But I suspect that with a lot of these things, there's probably a novelty factor involved. So if somebody said to you, hey, if you get on Netflix just now, they've got every single edition of On the Rocks, you think, bloody hell, where do I sign up? And you'd start watching the first episode and you'd say, ah, yeah, recognise that scene, recognise that scene. Oh, that's an interesting casting choice they've got there. And there. The, the idea that you'd actually then sit and watch like 26 episodes of it, I'm, I'm really not sure that you would. Not you yourself. I mean, I'm talking about myself, principally. <laughs> I don't think that my attention span would, would last that long. But it would be fun to see. It would be fun to see a side-by-side comparison of a lot of these shows. Now, with that in mind, we should really draw attention to a show that you and I have both spoken about only very recently. In fact, it was the Double Bill Christmas episode, two-parter of the sitcom club, which was Peep Show. Yes. Now, that was made into a pilot, unsuccessfully, which featured Johnny Galecki. Now, Johnny Galecki may be best known to sitcom fans as the man who plays Leonard in The Big Bang Theory. Now, The Big Bang Theory is Chuck Lorre's baby. Now, Chuck Lorre is... One of the big wigs in the world of US sitcoms, and he was involved in the early years of Roseanne, 
a series which Johnny Galecki and numerous other Big Bang Theory folk have featured. And the thing is about Roseanne, it's one of your favourite ones, I know that for sure. And I also know, of course, that had a direct correlation with Absolutely Fabulous for three different reasons. The first is that they appeared in character as Patsy and Adina, Joanna Lumley and Jennifer Saunders appeared in character from Absolutely Fabulous in an episode or two of Roseanne later on. But did you know that there was not one but two attempts to adapt Absolutely Fabulous into its own American version? I was not aware of this. Simply called Ab Fab. Why not? One attempt was by Roseanne Barr, and the other attempt was by Jennifer Saunders. So I would be very interested to see those two pilots. If they were indeed recorded, I haven't got a huge amount of information on them. I am aware that they reached the pilot zone, but how far they got, I do not know. But I would love to see both of those pilots and compare them and see how exactly they were interpreted by not just the original creator for the American market, but also Roseanne, who was friends with them and was a big fan, presumably for, of course, having them on the show. Yes, it's interesting when you get instances like that where a show is championed by somebody and somebody in a position where they can they can do something with it. You know, quite often adaptations shows going from one country to another, it's gonna be quite a long winded process. Having a champion of your show like Roseanne doesn't necessarily make the subsequent adaptation any funnier. You know, sometimes you know these these things go through many hands for a reason. And I guess in the case of Ab Fab, I mean it's not a show I'm particularly keen on myself, but I think that you'd have to have somebody like Jennifer Saunders really closely involved in every aspect of its transition because if you simply hand it over, I'm not saying that's what happened in that case, but if you hand it over to somebody else, they nobody goes out to wreck a show. Nobody's going to make a bad pilot. But if you don't get it, if, you, if you're just trying to do maybe like a straightforward, okay, a rewrite and this cultural reference ought to be changed to this and this and this and so on. Yeah, I mean, and then of course, I think in the case of AbFab, I think that there was a suggestion that some of their behaviour would have to be toned down. Well, that's missing the point, really, because it's the behaviour of the characters that, that is a big plus as far as the show's concerned, as far as you know, the UK audience, that they're behaving outrageously. Same with men behaving badly. So if you then say, oh, we can't have them doing that, or doing this, or doing that, and so on and so on, then you're getting dangerously close to, let's just have everybody be nice to each other territory. And then you haven't got the same show. You don't have anything. You don't have anything. You, you've bought a format, but you've you've changed it to such an extent that, you know, you might as well just buy a car and then take the wheels off it and expect it to run just as well. I don't want to stray away too far from American sitcoms, but for example, I've heard that the gritty London-based drama Luther is being adapted for the American market, and I don't think that would work there, because like we were saying about Ab Fab, is that if you take that over to America, that cynicism kind of gets lost, whereas I think with Luther, for example, if that goes to America, the whole point of the grittiness was the fact that it was in London where you kind of don't get people's tongues being cut out and women's faces being licked and pervy old people smashing through doors in... Maybe you do, but I haven't seen any of that. I suppose what makes that a refreshing aspect for crime drama fans is that it's in London and it's got this British setting and it's all very, not unexpected, but not something you expect to see in that setting. Whereas if you take Luther over to Los Angeles or New York, it's kind of, yeah, we've kind of broached that with CSI and various other dark crime series and the blacklist is very good for 
surprising you suddenly with a sudden bout of violence or something dark. So yeah, it it's all about translation, and I think that's something that we'll definitely be discussing in future episodes. Certainly when it comes to adaptations, because yeah, certain things aren't designed to translate; they're designed to be their own thing. And although that might not be beneficial, say, to the creator who might want to market it out there and branch it out and make some residuals and make some, you know, but it's not necessarily the best thing for the show itself. Yes, and a lot of this again comes back to the input of the original creator and not just whether the original creator wants to be involved heavily but also how much leeway they're given by the network and how much interference you get from the network i mean i really enjoyed episodes yes and i've still to see the rest of season four but i felt to be honest i wasn't all that keen at coming back for season four because i felt that season three just had a nice ending so I felt, you know, that that's probably where it should have ended. But particularly the first series, when it's concentrating principally on the process itself, it's, it's just a fascinating little glimpse into the number of people who could have their finger in the pie at any one time. And what you then end up with, you end up with something which really nobody wants to take ownership of. Because after it's gone through this sort of committee process, but it's not, that's the thing, it's not even a committee process necessarily. There'll be committees involved, but you've also got a sort of you know, upper level sort of management system where, you know, oh, we, we, we quite like this idea of maybe trying to appeal to this demographic or we've got this particular actor under contract, we need a vehicle for them. Would this be suitable? I keep on referring back to it because it's got so many nice little reference points, but the you can remind me who the, the, the guy was. Who was it that the network wanted to have in... I'm I'm sorry, I'm struggling I'm struggling with names today. Right, okay, so first of all, head writer, Phil, Larry Sanders. Yes. So he goes off and he's got this sitcom pilot which has been picked up by a network, but they say, Oh, we've got this particular guy under contract and we're interested in, in, in using him in this. Dave Chappelle. Right, okay. So then so the actor, not unreasonably, has requests of his own. So then it becomes, I can't quite relate to, to this sort of scenario that you've got set up here. Can we make some sort of amendments and what have you? Before you know it, it's like, this isn't my show anymore. This isn't anybody's show. What is this show? Yeah, I think that's what separates the Larry Sanders show from episodes, is that the Larry Sanders show summed up that whole premise in about 30 minutes, and episodes has somehow reached four seasons. Now, I'm not knocking episodes, and for the benefit of the audience, episodes is kind of a UK slash US sitcom because you've got British, in this case, export, Stephen Mangum, Tamsin Gregg, playing a couple, a writer couple, who go over to the US to redo a sitcom that they've written successfully in the UK for the benefit of an American audience. And, for example, the character of Richard Griffiths, who's a long-standing British actor, is replaced by Jerry from Friends, Matt LeBlanc. Now, it's funny you should mention episodes as an example, because when we were just saying there about translation and about certain things being removed, I felt with episodes, it should have, because it had that British strain in it, almost, mm -hmm. I felt it should have been darker overall. I felt that it should have been slightly more cynical than what it was, because it was already going down this route anyway, and it was already kind of exposing this element of this chaos behind the scenes and this backstabbing element. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if they just went a little bit darker with it? With Matt LeBlanc pretty much playing a slightly exaggerated version of himself and things, there could have been some amazing little dark 
cameos a la Larry Sanders. Mm -hmm. I just felt it could have been one step darker than it ended up being. And I'm not saying that's for for better or worse. It's just something I would have liked to have seen. I suppose it also depends if it was a different network. I mean, imagine if Episodes was produced by HBO. It would have perhaps gone down a much darker route. I would have thought that because it's a co-production between BBC and Showtime. Now, Showtime, Dexter, Californication, they're not afraid to go dark. And Episodes, for what it is, does go dark. You almost feel maybe that they took a step back, perhaps, because of the BBC involvement, and it's lighter than it should be, bizarrely. But I just felt that it could have gone darker. And it, it does have some quite bleak moments, all in all, and quite bitchy and quite backstabby. But I, I don't know, it just felt like it was it's missing something. For example, now, don't get me wrong, it might be the long con. It might be sort of when they're told, that's it, this is going to be your last season, that they might do this reveal. But... For the benefit of the audience who may not have seen episodes, this isn't a spoiler. There's a character who is the estranged wife of this bolshy American producer. And the concept is she's blind. Now, I'm not saying that this is necessarily the best idea, but as far as I'm aware, and I'm happy to be corrected wrong because I haven't seen the most recent season, but as far as I'm aware, she's still blind. There's no, there hasn't been any strange, miraculous thing where suddenly she's not blind anymore. And I thought that given the fact that one of the darker elements of this series is that the American producer is having affairs and he's not afraid to try and get away with things in front of his wife because she's blind and won't notice. It's quite a crude plot development really. And I always thought what would make a great twist, although not necessarily realistic, but there's a lot of bits in it that aren't for comedic purposes. But I always thought it'd be interesting if the producer's wife who's blind suddenly reveals that actually she hasn't been blind for all this time she's this great actress she's pretending to be blind so she can catch out her husband cheating on her mm -hmm. and sue him for everything he's got yeah i think that would make a perfectly appropriate twist in that character's development because at the moment her being blind is literally being used for a cheap gag yeah i know i did i did sort of think that perhaps it would go in that direction but perhaps maybe that would be seen as too obvious a uh, gag i don't know but yeah I, I was sort of i was waiting for the reveal to come in that in that series and yeah it never happened but so the fact that she's blind is the conflict but the narrative can then be coerced by the fact that she's an actress and say ah well there's the twist she's an actress and therefore she's pretending to be blind for this reason so I just think that although it may be obvious to people who perhaps watch comedy a little bit too much like ourselves, I think overall to an audience who are watching that, they, they might think, well, if you can get away with this and you can get away with that, then why not get away with this? Yeah. It's just, it's all, in the, it's all in the way that they do it and the way that they introduce these kind of plot twists and things. I mean, that's why there are certain series, certainly off the top of my head in the UK, like Father Ted, where you could look at those and think, well, Father Ted, for starters, is, as Graham Linehan has said, is... Uh, his comedy is very much influenced by the likes of The Simpsons, for example. Mm -hmm. But Father Ted is a world where you can almost picture anything's possible in some shape or form. The Simpsons, arguably, a lot of people have said in the past, started to appear like a different show when they started taking the narrative that they'd already created, even though it was very bendy and very bendable. You could twist it and throw in these things which are completely impossible 
outside of that world. It just about held that together. And then around, I believe there was an episode somewhere around season 12, 13, where you have this episode, I think it's called Saddle Saw Galactica, right. where Homer buys a horse for a horse race and it starts to go very well and they win a few races and then he gets absconded by a load of jockeys who take him to an underground world and sing songs with him. <laughs> for me personally, that felt like the turning point where it took the narrative that it built up to this point and suddenly snapped it. Because up to that point, the Halloween episodes were the episodes where they could completely snap reality and, and have fun with it. But that, within that context, made sense. Whereas now suddenly they're in standard episodes, they've got bloody jockeys in underground worlds and all this and it just suddenly got and it, it just went from there it just suddenly went to this point of no return don't get me wrong there are a good fair few episodes between that episode and now where the narratives are absolutely fine it goes back to normal but just something about that for me personally and i don't want to be put in that ballpark of people who slag off present day simpsons but yeah i just feel that was for me personally the beginning of the end of me watching it on a regular basis mm -hmm. So it's all about the reality you create and how far you can push it. And I think with episodes, I think there's still parts of it they can explore. And I think part of it is the absurdity of Hollywood. And because that is part of the appeal, they could actually stretch that absurdity a little bit further if they wanted to. I can understand them not wanting to do that. But then, to be honest, this is showtime. And without giving anything away about these two series, Dexter and Californication, both of those shows, in my personal opinion, could have ended about two seasons earlier than they did. And Californication, not so much, but certainly with Dexter, they went too far to the point of no return, when that could have ended quite healthily around seasons four and five, and it went beyond that. So, as you say, it's also down to network. But back to creators. Now, that's something else we'd like to cover in the Sitcom Club USA. We'd like to talk about creators, because, of course, in the UK, we have similar examples of identifying sitcoms through the styles of their creators. Gary, can you name a few writers or writing duos that we can instantly associate a particular sitcom with in the UK? Well, probably I'd say, for example, Clement and Lafrenet, even though they've got a wide body of work, I suppose you'd first of all associate them with Porridge. You could also say, for example, obviously John Cleese and Connie Booth, Faulty Towers. You'd say maybe... Brian Cook and Johnny Mortimer, you principally associate with Man About the House. You've got Esmond and Larby, a huge body of work again, probably most associated with The Good Life. And of course, missing out the obvious one, Galton Simpson. Galton Simpson's more tricky to, to sort of pin down to one particular show because I think you'd probably get a 50-50 answer on either Hancock or Steptoe Son. But of course, they've written many, many things besides that. And of course, now, I mean, nowadays, of course, you've got, for example, say, Bain and Armstrong, peep show. Individual writers, obviously you've got, for example, Simon Nye these days. You have, in years gone past, obviously somebody like David Nobbs or Eric Chappell. You'd have had... Who's that one who wrote Alf Garnet? Alf Garnet was Johnny Spate. And still going strong today, of course, Roy Clark. Still writing, still open our lovers just now. And, you know, responsible for a huge volume of work over the past sort of 30 or 40 years and although perhaps we may be slightly moving away from that I'm not entirely keen on this I suppose you would say evolution 
or this this element of evolution where you've got a lot of shows being written by the performers. So, for example, you've got, say, like Josh Widdicombe's show is on just now. Mm. I presume that's been written by himself, possibly uh, in, in collaboration with somebody else. But if anybody saw that lovely Dan's Army drama that was on over Christmas, then you'll know the perils of writing a part for yourself and why that can not only be harmful as far as the overall balance is concerned, because if you're writing good lines for yourself, that could lead to an imbalance later on with the rest of the cast, but also if it's an ensemble piece, then it can lead to ill feeling as well. So I'm not entirely keen on the sort of writer slash performer. It's a bit of a bugbear of mine. I, I really don't like... Particularly, I don't like writers who are not actors who then write themselves into shows. Not mentioning any names, Glenner. But, yeah, maybe I'm old-fashioned, but I like writers to be writers. And I think that the best shows tend to work like that. I don't know that people are then just going to say, oh, 40 Towers. Okay, fair enough, 40 Towers is one example. But there are plenty of examples, and the best sitcoms, the ones that are most celebrated in the UK, tend to be written by writers who are not also appearing in the show. You've just reminded me of a show that I don't believe was covered in the sitcom club, or hasn't yet been covered in the sitcom club, but The League of Gentlemen. Uh-huh. Four writers in total, but three of those are also performers. What's your view on The League of Gentlemen, as we've never really discussed that one? League of Gentlemen, I, I sort of I enjoyed parts of the first series. I never really heard on the town, so I was coming to it new. Bits and pieces were okay, but as time went on, I sort of I got a little bit tired of it. I'm not really into, for example, horror as a genre, and so I suspect I'm probably missing out on some bits and pieces which they allude to, for example. You know, something like Spaced, when you, when you get the references, it's nice. If you don't get the references, you can feel, you know, slightly isolated. And I got that same sort of impression with League of Gentlemen, that there's probably allusions to bits and pieces that I wasn't getting. I don't know. I suspect, actually, that this is... I know everybody's different, and everybody... That you, your, your tastes change as, as you go on in years, and everybody's different, and some people still like the same stuff they like maybe 30 years ago and so on. I'm approaching 40, and I notice that my tastes are starting to change now, mm. and some of the things which I would have found hilarious even 15 years ago, now some of them leave a bad taste in my mouth. I sort of... Maybe I'm becoming more conservative in my tastes, but I like comedy to be just that. I don't really want nasty surprises. That might be, for example, some of the more sort of extreme sort of elements in something like League of Gentlemen. There were bits and pieces in Tim and Eric's Awesome Show, Great Job, Season 5, which I didn't like. I don't also like things, for example, where there's a lot of heavy pathos. You know, when you get the sort of bait and switch and suddenly you're being hit with a hard dramatic scene. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. But yeah, I'm starting to get to the point now where I really like... I like to to know what I'm dealing with as I go into it. And that probably doesn't say a lot for my taste as far as having like a, a broad horizon is concerned. I think it possibly makes you less likely to try out new things. But I tend to sort of like knowing where I am with something. And, and the most recent sitcom that I've enjoyed was Cradle to Grave. Mm-hmm. Because I just I sort of got a handle on it straight away. I thought, okay, I know what I'm dealing with here. There's going to be sort of dramatic elements to it, but overall, it's going to be it's, it's got a nice warm feeling to it. Overall, there's no surprises in it. I really enjoyed Friday Night Dinner. I hope that's going to come back at some point. 
And yeah, so so that's a very long-winded answer. But yeah, to answer your question, yeah, I, I sort of I I got on with bits and pieces of it in 1999. I wouldn't sit through it now. I was thinking, if you're tempted, when I was in America this year, I went to Amoeba Records, which anyone who is in Los Angeles, there's also one in San Francisco and various other parts of the country, but I strongly recommend going to Amoeba Records and just, just diving in for everything. It's fantastic. Such a good store. We have nothing of that comparison in the UK. And I picked up a copy of a one-off series called Death Comes to Town, produced, written, and starring the Canadian sketch troupe, The Kids in the Hall. And The Kids in the Hall, for those who aren't familiar, are, in terms of UK audiences, you may or may not have seen them. It would have usually been early 90s, late Channel 4, when Channel 4 used to show an abundance of weird and wonderful exports sent fresh from America and beyond. So you get a little bit of weird animation, you'd get some cable shows that didn't really see much action back in their home country and so forth and with the kids in the hall and although they do have a cult following and the series was produced by Lorne Michaels from Saturday Night Live there was a small group of fans in the UK who grew up seeing these shows sporadically appear late night on Channel 4 and so when I heard about Death Comes to Town I was very intrigued because it'd been a fair while since they had done much together as a sketch group and something that becomes very apparent when you're watching Death Comes to Town very quickly is that if you're a fan of the League of Gentlemen, there's a definite influence there. And I, if I'm not mistaken, I couldn't give you the exact source, but I do recall an interview with the kids in the hall where they do cite the League of Gentlemen as an influence on this particular show. And of course, in the same field, you've got a specific amount of actors playing all the characters, more or less, in this peculiar town peculiar characters and peculiar situations occurring and all these various mysterious subplots and it's a little bit fantastical and so on. Gary, if I posted over my copy of Death Comes to Town, would you be interested in trying out not new things, but something that seems familiar but isn't? I'd certainly give it a go, yeah. Are you familiar with the kids in the hall? I've seen bits and pieces, I saw bits and pieces of their stuff on satellite TV a, a long, long time ago. Maybe, hell, maybe like 20 years ago or something like that. But I'm not overly familiar with the work now. Okay, well, that's one that we will have to investigate. Because I think, because although I understand that you won't be involved with every episode of the Sitcom Club USA, I'd like to see your views on particular shows that you may have not encountered previously, if that makes sense. Yes, yes, indeed. And I trust your recommendations. So. Yeah, if you've recommended it, I'm quite happy to give it a go. I'm not saying I'll like it, but I'm quite happy to watch an episode. Even though I think you've actually recommended dozens of shows to me over the past few years and probably haven't really watched more than two of them. But I am going to watch Headache Andre. I've got it saved. I've got it on the drive. I'm going to watch it. I was about to say that one. Yes. <laughs> yes. I have, I have actually got it. I just haven't seen it yet. So the Eric Andre show is an anti-talk show. One that maybe we should discuss on a currently dormant podcast that we have both been on previously the talk show talk show which is hopefully coming back within the next month or two with any luck and yes if you watch the eric andre show maybe we'll discuss that and discuss the concept of anti-talk shows and i don't i won't go into it now but anyone who hasn't seen the eric andre show should track it down and watch it their new year's eve spooktacular is one of the best things i've ever seen right 
And yes, I will not say anything more here, but if you if you've heard of the Eric Andre show, you should definitely check it out, listeners. 